Well, good evening. Wow, that's pretty loud, isn't it? It's good to see you tonight. I hope you've had a great week, and 2022 is off to a good start, and I know we have a lot of people watching online uh, tonight as well, and we welcome you wherever you are and however you may be joining us as we continue with the study of uh, John, the Gospel of John, looking at a portrait of Jesus right, based primarily on what he said, and so we're glad that you're here joining us tonight. John chapter 17 is where we are. It's good to be back after a couple of weeks off to the holidays, the Christmas and the New Year season, and now we're going to the last five chapters of the Gospel of John. We will end on February the 2nd, and then starting on February the 9th will be the book of Revelation as we start going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through Revelation as soon as we finish John, and that's going to begin on February the 9th. So we will wrap up John on February the 2nd. Let's have a word of prayer, and we will get started with our study this evening. Let's pray together. God, thank you tonight for the opportunity to study your word together, to look at this beautiful prayer of Jesus right before he went to the cross for each one of us. God, I just pray tonight you give us insight into what Jesus prayed, how it affects our lives today, what we need to be, how we need to be different because of his desire to the Father uh, for us. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would bless our time together. May the Holy Spirit bear a teacher, give us insight into this beautiful passage. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, turn in your Bibles or your devices or whatever you have. The ESV version is what we always study on Wednesday nights. And we are to John chapter 17. And since it's been a couple of weeks, let's catch back up where we are. If you remember, Jesus was in the upper room with the disciples. They had the Last Supper. He washed their feet. He instituted the Lord's Supper as a part of the Last Supper, the body which is broken for you, the blood which is shed for you. Wash their feet, and then they're leaving now the upper room, and they're going across to the Garden of Gethsemane. If you've ever been to Israel, you've made that same walk. You've walked with our group from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's not a long walk. It's maybe guessing, I would say, what, maybe a mile? Maybe. It's maybe not that far. Uh, it's a, a few blocks. Um, but uh, it's not far from the upper room to the, to the Garden of Gethsemane. So all, either on the way or in the upper room, as they're starting to leave, Jesus tells the disciples two more things. John records chapter 15. He gives the passage where I am the vine, you're the branches, and apart from me you can do nothing. And he talks about this analogy of you and me. You have to be in me to have power, strength, to have life. And so you've got to be in the vine. And then he told them right after that, John 16, I'm going away from you. Now remember, Every time he told them that, they really didn't get it. Don't, they don't think the Messiah is going to die. So whenever he said the Messiah, son of man, is going to be killed, but he'll rise again, they had no clue. They're thinking, we don't know what you're talking about. So again, he tells them, I'm going away, but it's good for you that I do because the Holy Spirit will come and he will be with you 24-7. I can only be with you certain times of the day. He'll be with you 24-7. And you're about to have sorrow, but that sorrow is going to be turned to joy. Well, we know what that is. It's crucifixion, resurrection. And then he said, the last part of John chapter 16, he says, don't be discouraged. I have overcome the world. And because of I've overcome the world, you can overcome the world and you will overcome the world. So he stops there. And now we go to John 17 and a prayer is recorded of Jesus. 
It's a beautiful prayer. It's the longest prayer we have of Jesus. It's the, uh, we, we've told several times Jesus prayed. We don't know what he prayed. But in this instance, we know what he prayed because it's recorded for us. So all of chapter 17 is nothing but Jesus praying to the Father just before he goes to the cross and dies for us. So that's where we are. Look at letter A on your outline, first of all, about the prayer. Then I want to look at the background of the prayer, and then we'll move into the passages. First of all, let me talk a little bit about the prayer itself before we actually get to it. Some of you may remember studying the life of John Knox. John Knox was a Scottish uh, Presbyterian preacher who was really concerned that the Presbyterian church in Scotland in the 1500s was becoming too political and not spiritual. It was not the spiritual body that Jesus designed. It was a political body that, that Queen Mary, or Mary, Queen of Scots, however she's called, would use for political gain. So John Knox led what was called the Reformation in Scotland. And he attacked the Queen Mary and, and uh, said that the church needs to be different than what it is. And he was known as a man of powerful prayer. He would pray something that would happen. In fact, Mary, uh, the Queen of, uh, of Scotland, said one time, she's famously quoted as saying, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than I fear all the assembled armies of Europe. So, John Knox was a man who was known for powerful prayer and, and devotion to the Lord. Well, 1572, he was on his deathbed dying. His last request, he asked his wife to get the Bible and come read John 17 to him. Jesus' final prayer before he died, just as John knew that he was dying. She asked him why this passage, and John Knox said, because John 17 is where I first cast my anchor as a believer. And I want to come back to the same passage as I die. What a powerful passage it must be for a man as godly and devotional as John Knox that wanted this read to him as he was going into glory. Most theologians have said it's the greatest prayer ever recorded in Scripture or elsewhere. Uh, there have been a lot of beautiful prayers. In fact, there are probably people that you like to hear pray. Certain people maybe in church or maybe in your family or Sunday school or wherever. But you go, you know, I just, whenever they pray, it just seems like they're calling down heaven. It just seems like, like uh, they're really communing with a friend. And you just really enjoy hearing them pray. Well, Jesus, in this prayer, it's one of those. It's beautiful. It's to the Father just before his death. And, and you can just imagine the, 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 the prayer itself of Jesus before the Father. Great prayers of the Bible, Abraham in Genesis 18, beautiful prayer. Moses, uh, Exodus 32, beautiful prayer. Solomon, 1 Kings 8, beautiful prayer. Nehemiah chapter 1, beautiful prayer. Great prayers all throughout the Bible. But this is undoubtedly the height of all the prayers that have been recorded in Scripture. Philip Melanchthon was the best friend of Martin Luther. Melanchthon said about this passage, There is no voice ever heard in heaven or on earth more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, or more sublime 
than Jesus' voice in John chapter 17. So tonight we have the opportunity, the unique opportunity to see Jesus' heart in a little different way through what he prayed. I've already mentioned to you it's the most lengthy prayer that Jesus prayed that's ever recorded for us. Warren Wearsby said, whenever you read John 17, you are approaching the Holy of Holies. So read it with humility and read it worshipfully. So we will tonight. Now go to letter V on your outline. Let's look at the background of this beautiful prayer. Whenever I was a boy growing up in uh, southeastern Oklahoma, there was a man in our church, every time they called on him to pray publicly, that was back in the days that preacher would stand up and just on the spot would call on somebody to pray, and you're always sitting there, you know, oh no, I hope it's not me. But there was a man he always called on to pray from time to time, and his, whenever he stood to pray, he would go into this cadence, almost like it's very rhythmic, almost like it's a sermon. And everybody said, oh, I just, oh, it's so beautiful. I just love to hear him pray. And his words were, they were flowery, and the phrases were flowery. You could tell he worked on them. They were well-crafted. He used a lot of these and a lot of hithers and a lot of thithers. And people used to say, oh, I just love to hear him pray. And as a boy, I didn't have a clue what he was saying. Couldn't understand as a boy what he meant, what he was saying. But I knew whenever he was called on to pray, it was a special Sunday. Because if he called on that man to pray, we either had a guest we wanted to impress or it was a special Sunday, or it was Easter, but it was a special day. And everybody said, oh, I just love to hear him pray. And the sentences were long and flowery. And as I look at John 17, it is nothing like this man's prayers. Jesus' words are short. Sentences are short. Nothing flowery. No, these or thithers or hithers are well-crafted phrases that you work on that really sound good publicly. In fact, his prayer, his words and sentences, they, they were very simple. The ideas are moving. The ideas are deep and meaningful, but very easy to understand. A boy can understand so, the first thing you notice about the prayer is it really wasn't this flowery, beautiful, well-crafted words just put together that make you go, oh, what a beautiful prayer. Very simple, but very moving. Now, go back a little bit. You may remember uh, one time the disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, will you teach us to pray. And you remember his response, what we know as some say the Lord's Prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer tonight. It's really the model prayer the other one was. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you're thinking that's the model prayer. But then you compare that prayer with what we're going to read tonight. 
It's totally different. One of the main differences I noticed in what you're about to read in the model prayer is that the model prayer is an inferior talking to a superior, us talking to God. In this prayer, two equals are talking, just different. Nowhere else in any prayer do two equals talk. You pray tonight, it's an inferior talking to a superior. But here you have two equals who are speaking. Now, a lot of people have said about John 17, well, it's a very gloomy prayer. It's very downcast. It's kind of a little depressing because he's going to the cross to die and he knows it. But you know, I don't see anything gloomy about this prayer. I don't see anything downcast about it. It's, it's full of confidence. It's full of faith. Not despondent in any way. In fact, if you go back to the last verse Jesus said in John 16, 33, before the prayer starts in John 17, 1, notice what he said. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That's triumphant. It's not gloomy. So he enters this prayer with a spirit, not of down, being downcast or gloominess, but I believe with faith and victory. He knows what's about to happen, but he knows that he's going to the Father as well. Now in the prayer that I'm going to read in just a moment, um, and I'll stop as we go through and mention a few things, but we'll, we'll get through it relatively quickly. But I want you to notice as we go through this prayer the, the key words that keep coming up. Whenever you pray, what key words keep coming up? You ever notice any? Forgive, maybe. Help me, maybe. Whenever Jesus prayed, certain words kept coming up. The word glory comes up. Um, the word glorify comes up a lot. The word sent comes up a lot. The word given, the word believe, the word world, the word love comes up a lot. And, and as you read through it, you notice what Jesus repeatedly prays for. Really three things. He, he prays out of a concern for God's name. He's concerned about the name of God and how it's viewed. That's number one. Number two, he prays for work in the kingdom. And number three, he prays that we will be kept from evil. Now, as you pray, does that sound like what you pray for? Do you pray a lot that God's name would be revered in this world? Do you pray a lot about the work in the kingdom? Do you pray a lot about keeping us from evil? Or are your prayers centered more about, well, God, give me a good day. Let me have a good day. You see, what Jesus prayed for and what we pray for often are vastly different. I, I want to pray more like he prayed. So, let's get started looking at the passage. Whenever it says in chapter 17, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, what words are we talking about? Where did he pray this? Well, 
Traditionally, we have been led to believe, it was in the Garden of Gethsemane, that he left the upper room, that he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and then he started praying. But all it tells us is when Jesus had spoken these words, what words? Chapters 15 and 16. And, and he spoke them either in the upper room, on the way to the garden, or in the garden, one of the three places. So we know the prayer was probably prayed either in the upper room, on the way, or in the garden. Did the disciples hear him praying it? We don't know. It's recorded. So either they heard him, and John's taking notes, or Mark's taking notes. He was the first to write. Or Jesus told them later what he said. Somehow, we have the words recorded. So Jesus, verse 1, spoke in these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven to pray. Now, usually, usually, in the Western world anyway, what we're familiar with, when you, whenever you pray a deep prayer that is really close to your heart, usually you bow your head. Usually, close your eyes. Rarely do you lift your eyes open and lift them to heaven whenever you're praying a deep prayer of, of faith in your heart. Not always, but usually, the Western world, our posture is to drop our heads. He didn't. He lifted his. Now, some theologians have said one of the reasons John records this for us is that he lifted up his eyes so we can visualize it happening. So we can visualize, okay, he spoke these words, he walked out, he lifted up his eyes, and we can just picture the prayer taking place. Maybe, but we are told that he lifted up his eyes and that he began to pray. Now, here's, here's what he prayed. <clears throat> He said, verse 1, Father, very first word, Father. I want you to notice all the way through the prayer how many relational words there are, relationship. Father, you, your son, yourselves, ourselves. You see, prayer is basically a relationship and speaking in relational terms. And so, notice through here how many relational terms are mentioned. Father, that's how he begins. The hour has come. What? His death. Crucifixion. It's here. All eternity had pointed toward it. The fullness of time, the birth, 33 years later, we're finally here, Lord, that humanity can be redeemed. The hour is here. Glorify your son in verse 1, that your son may glorify you. So the very first sentence out of his mouth is not that God would help him through that horrible crucifixion that I told you about in the sermon series, Six Hours. Not that he would be helped personally through the floggings and the beating and the bleed and, and, and the, uh, the beating and the bleeding, not that he would help him. God glorify me so I can glorify you. 
That's what's most important. Whenever you wake up in the morning, you start your day, you begin with prayer, is the first sentence out of your mouth. God, may I glorify your name today. That was Jesus' first words, first sentence. Now, he goes on, verse 2. So let's look now at Roman uh, numeral C, or rather letter C on your outline. They're glorifying the Father's name, verses 2 through 5. Since you have given me, verse 2, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. So he ends the sentence there. So let's read it again. Father, the hours come. Glorify your Son that I may glorify you since you've given me authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given me. So he's saying, Lord, I, I'm about to die and that gives me all authority over all flesh. Anybody that can now trust me and have eternal life. And God, this has happened because you have given them to me. Now, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus select the 12? Did he choose them? Why did he say, God, you gave them to me? Maybe it was because Jesus went out and prayed all night before he selected the 12. You remember that? He prayed all night. And you're thinking, if Jesus is God, why doesn't he just go out on the spot? He knows everything and goes, okay, let's say Matthew, uh, James, John, Peter, Thaddeus, Jude. Why did he pray all night about who to select? Because in his humanity, wanting to know whom the Father had given him for the next three and a half years... Who are those disciples? Who are they going to be? Five times in this prayer, five times, he says, Father, the disciples are the ones you gave me. Five times uses the phrase, you gave them to me. We're thinking Jesus chose them, the chosen, the selected ones. But he says, Lord, they're the ones you gave me. Go to verse 3. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true and uh, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you sent. So Jesus, in his prayer, defines eternal life as knowing God. Very simple. He does not describe everlasting life or eternal life by its duration. We do. Oh, everlasting life is from now on. He doesn't describe it by its duration. He describes it by its relationship. Eternal life is knowing God. It's not how long you live. Because if you think about it, everybody's going to live forever somewhere. Hell or heaven. So everlasting life, eternal life, is not its duration. It's its relationship. And forever, you're going to be in the presence of God. And that's going to be the joy of it. And this is eternal life that they know you. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. For complete fulfillment, we must know God. And the only way you can know God, he tells us right here, is through Jesus Christ in verse 4. Verse 3. Verse 4. 
I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Stop there for a moment. It's beautiful. What he's praying, if you remember, think about this. Before the world ever began, God and Jesus in perfect glory and fellowship and harmony. But in what's known as the kenosis, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, where Jesus emptied himself of all of that glory, emptied himself of all of it and humbled himself and came down to earth, down to the cross, down to being obedient. Now he says, let's reverse the kenosis and let's once again enjoy the glory. What a powerful picture. Read it again. And now, Father, glorify me that in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. That glory and fellowship with the Father is now returning and Jesus can't wait. He loved coming down to become one of us, but his greatest glory is with the Father. And with verse 5, every prayer for himself in this prayer ceased. From now on, he prays for the disciples. He prays for you. Wow. 26 verses, and only five of them are for himself. And he's about to go to the cross. What percentage of your prayers are about you? And what percentage of his prayers is about him? <laughs> Not much. And I've never gone through a crucifixion. I've never gone through a Roman flogging. I've never received the 39 stripes. I've never known what it's like to have your back stripped and to, be, to, to die basically with your heart exploding. I've never known that. I would think I'd be praying for myself if I was about to face that in just a few hours. But in this prayer, five verses out of 26 for himself. Now let's go to letter C. He prays for the disciples. Glorifying, or rather a D, a disi the disciples praying for them starting in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. He's talking about the 12, or the 11. We'll see that in a moment. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, here Jesus begins to pray for the disciples. The 11, Judas is about to Go betray him. So Jesus now has prayed for the disciples before he chose them. He prayed for them during his ministry, prayed for them at the end of his ministry, prayed for them here, prays for them later, and then prays for them in heaven. Wow, he's praying for them a lot, wasn't he? And he says, I'm praying for them, Lord, that the ones that you gave me out of the world, because they have kept your word. Verse 7. Now they know everything you've given, uh, that you've given me is from you. They didn't know that for a while. 
You remember, during Jesus' ministry, the disciples are scratching their heads. Where did he get this teaching? Who is he that the wind and the waves obey? They can't figure it out. But now at the end, Jesus prays, Thank you, God, they're finally going to get it. They're finally going to understand what I've been telling them. Thank you, Lord. Verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. You get the feeling in verses 7 and 8, it's no longer the man of Galilee speaking. It's now, it's now God the Father speaking. Rather than talking in veiled terms, now he's very direct and he's very clear. Verse 9, I am praying for them, the 11 minus Judas. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. Stop for a moment. Jesus said, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for the 11. Doesn't mean he doesn't love the world. Doesn't mean he doesn't want the world to be saved. It's just when he pours out his heart to the Father, he's not praying for the world. He's praying for the disciples. I think sometimes we may spend more time praying about our world's conditions than we do praying for other believers. Maybe. How many times have I heard, oh, preacher, we, we need to pray for this world. It's, it's bad. Jesus said, I don't, I'm not praying for the world. We know what's going to happen here. I'm praying for the disciples. They'd be strengthened. they they keep, be loyal to you. They do their mission. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. Verse 10. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So after three and a half years, after all their knuckle-headed ways, after all their failures and foibles and everything they went through, at the end of the day, Jesus said, Father, I'm praying for those 11 guys because I am glorified in their lives. Wow. <laughs> Gives us hope, doesn't it? Because I fail and, and I, don't, I'm, I bumble and stumble as much as the disciples many days. But to know that God can look at me and say, you glorify me, Greg, and that you glorify him as well. Gives us hope, doesn't it? That maybe at the end of the day, he can look at us and say, you glorified me. And they glorified him. And he says, I, I, they're, they're mine. They glorified me. And then, of course, they would later on, by each of them giving their lives, with the possible exception of John, giving their lives for Jesus. Verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I'm coming to you. Holy Father, Keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Now, let me stop for a minute. A couple of important things in verse 11. First of all, the only time the phrase Holy Father is used in all of the Gospel of John is right here. The only time. 
And you get the impression that Jesus uses the phrase here, Holy Father, because there's something that he is about to say that he really wants God to hear. We do that. Sometimes I'll, I'll, I'm about to say something I really want God to hear, and I go, oh, oh, dear God, and then I'll say it. And by saying Holy Father, that was probably what Jesus meant as well. Oh, Holy Father, I have something to say. Two things, I pray for them. First of all, keep them in your name. What does that mean? Well, Bible scholars are kind of don't know. It either means one of two things. Keep them by your name or in your name. It depends on what the word in means, I-N. In the Greek, it's the word E-N. And if it's in the locative case, it means one thing. It means uh, by the power of your name. If it's in the instrumental case, it means to keep them loyal to your name. Big difference. So he's either praying, Holy Father, keep them by the power of your name. They're about to go through trials. Keep them by the power of your name. Or it could mean, if it's the instrumental case, Lord, keep them loyal to you. May they not fall away like Judas is going to do. It could be either. That was his prayer, that they would be kept by the name of God. Excuse me. Still have this call from, not COVID, I've been tested. It's not COVID, it's the allergies. So. But here's the second thing he said in verse 11. Holy Father, keep them by your name, which you've given to me. Look at the last phrase. That they may be one, even as we're one. So the great desire for Jesus was that the disciples, who were very fractured, they're angry at each other. Peter, James, and John are their little inner circle. They're Jesus' pets. They're his favorites. And can we sit at your right hand and your left? And can we, there's a power struggle. And one got mad at the others. And, and they're fractured. And, and in just a few hours, they're all going to scatter and flee except for John. And he's praying that they come back together and be unified. Because his great desire is that the disciples were as unified in oneness as God and Jesus were unified. That's a pretty close bond. And he wanted them to have the same bond. Now go to verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them. And not one of them has been lost. Except the son of destruction. That the scripture might be fulfilled. It's Judas Iscariot, right? The son of destruction. It's called, the original language, the son of perdition. Literally means the one doomed to destruction. Could be referring to Judas' character, or it could be referring to his destiny. We don't know. Is perdition a part of who he was? Is perdition a part of what he did? Was Judas saved or not? That was a big question that, that is a big question. A lot of theologians still scratch their heads on. Is he saved? Was he saved or not? Did he go to heaven or not? Some say yes, he did because it was his destiny what he did, but his character was to be one who followed Jesus for three and a half years. Others say no. He, he, even though he followed them, he never was a true believer. 
And so perdition was a part of his character. It wasn't part of his destiny. And so therefore he went to hell. And so there's a debate back and forth whether Judas was saved or not. Most theologians, I would say, would lean on the side that he was not a believer. The only other time the phrase son of perdition is used in all the Bible is 2 Thessalonians 2.3. You know who it's talking about? Antichrist. So Judas and the Antichrist both are called son of perdition. So that leads some theologians to believe that the Antichrist is going to be Judas resurrected and walk the earth. We don't know uh, if you're a premillennial dispensationalist. That couldn't happen because unbelievers are not resurrected till the end of the millennium and the Antichrist does his work during the millennium. So we don't know. But there is a theory out there that the Antichrist will be Judas who is resurrected and come back to work against the Father and, and Jesus. Go to verse 13. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them, verse 14, your word. And the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. That's a good word for us. Don't be surprised when our culture hates Christians. We're not of the world. We're not like them. When they make laws that go against the Bible, don't be surprised. When they don't accept our values, don't be surprised. When they laugh at us because we believe Scripture, don't be surprised. Because the father, according to this prayer, the Father and the world are opposite loyalties. And if you have a loyalty to the Father, the world's going to hate you. There's no way you can be loyal to the Father and the world love you. No way. He said, it didn't love me, it won't love you. So there you go. Don't be surprised the world doesn't give in to Christians or value the things of the world, I mean, or of, of, of God. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. How many times have you thought, God, I could serve you so much better if I just got out of the world? If I just got away from everything, if I just got alone with you and live my life like that? Well, the monastics thought that, and it didn't work. But that's not what Jesus prayed for. He didn't pray that you just get away from the world, away from all problems and troubles, and just live your life in harmony with Jesus and God the rest of your days. He didn't pray for that. He said, I don't pray you remove them from the world. I pray that you keep them from the evil one while they're in the world. Verse 16, they're not of the world. Just as I'm not of the world, verse 17, sanctify them, means set apart, in the truth. Your word is truth. Don't miss that. Sanctify them by, the, by truth. Your word is truth. Folks, we as believers ought to know the word well. That's what sanctifies us. 
That's what's going to help us as we live out these days in the world to keep being kept from the evil one. It's important to know the Bible. It's important to understand the Bible. It's important to believe the Bible. It's important to obey the Bible. So whatever you do, give your time and effort and energy to knowing God's Word well. I don't know how many posts I've seen on Facebook the last few days. Somebody give me a list of books to read for 2022. What's your reading list? I read 35 books this last year. I read 50 books this last year. Read the Bible. Study the Bible. Know it. You can never know enough about it. It is truth, and it will sanctify you, and it will protect you from the evil one. Well, that's my, that's my soapbox. Let's move on. Verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. It's a mission. As I was sent, so were you sent. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. Now, I've got a few minutes. Let's end with 20 to 26 because let's go to letter E. He prays for you. Now in the prayer, the prayer shifts from the disciples, the eleven to every believer in the future who will be saved because the disciples were faithful to preach. That's me. That's you. So he prays for you. If Jesus is going to pray for you, what would he pray for? You're about to hear it. Six verses. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. Verse 21, here's what he's praying. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. i got to stop for a second. Jesus' number one prayer request for you and for me, it would be unified. Not that we all agree on the same things about the vaccinations. Not that we all agree on the same things about masks, or COVID, or the government, or politics, or which news agency. No. We're more fractured. We're more fractured than I've ever seen in my ministry. And his prayer is that we be one. Because us being one is much more important than getting politics right or getting the vaccine right or getting anything else right. It's truth. It's His Word. We are one. As Jesus and the Father are one. Now, why does He want us one? He tells us. Look at verse end of verse 21. So that the world may believe you sent me. Here's, his, here's Jesus' logic. Lord, Father, if my believers are unified, the world will see that unity and believe there's something to Christianity. Let me say that again. If the world sees us as one, they believe there's something to Christianity. 
they don't believe it if we get all of the politics right. They're not going to believe it if we get all the issues right. They believe there's something to Jesus when they see the fact that we believe all these different things, but we're one. And that our Sunday schools don't have to be in a certain room, or they don't have to have a certain thing, or that our seats don't have to be in a certain place, or we have to have a certain style of worship. We are one. And when we are, when we are, the world sees maybe there's something to Christianity after all. That's what he said. It's not my words. That's what Jesus prayed. So I think, I think this prayer is something we really need in our day. Let's go to verse 22 we'll close. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them that they may be one. He said it again, as we are one. Verse 23. I and them and you and me, that they may become, uh-oh, wait a minute, perfectly one. Boy, he's really hammering on this point, isn't he? Perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them as you've loved me. Verse 24. That's twice he said the world, if they see our unity, will get saved. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now he closes verses 25 and 26. O righteous Father... He closed the same way he began. Remember how he began? He looked up, Father. He closed the same way. Oh, righteous Father. Even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you've sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Amen. What a beautiful and powerful prayer from Jesus pouring out his heart just before his death. Next Wednesday night, we will pick up with Jesus being betrayed by Judas and arrested, and the end begins. Questions or comments you may have before we close? Yes, Raleigh. That's right. Come on up. <laughs> Charlie, you come on up too. You know, uh, I don't know, 30-something years ago, and I was trying to figure out my theology, I stumbled across 17.3, um, uh -huh. and that has stuck with me, just how simple salvation is. Yes. It's just knowing God. Exactly it's right. not a list of what to do, you know. It's just, do you know God? Do you have a relationship with God? That is eternal life. And um, true. I, know, I just I love that verse. Exactly, it's, it is. It's yeah. stuck with me, and, and it's been a good... Um, uh, witness tool, I guess, uh, to share when people say, you know, well, what is your salvation? It's well, it's knowing God. It's knowing God, and and, and yeah. how do you how do you know Him? And He tells us it's Jesus Christ. Yeah, when people Absolutely. say, say yeah. the Bible is, you know, Bible's a list of do's and don'ts. No, no, it's not. It's exactly right. It's, it, it's very core. Salvation is knowing God. That's exactly right. Very good. Thank you, Riley, for that. Charlie, come on up. You've got something for us, I know. <laughs> I stay confused about uh, Judas. He went with the twelve to cast out devils and mm -hmm. heal the sick. And 
pray, pray for people. And he was with them. He sure was. You're... And and uh, of course, all through the Bible, it says that he's the one that denied Jesus. Mm-hmm. So he either is or he wasn't. And I don't see how he could be saved if he went with them to cast out devils. Did he hide in the closet? Or? It's, good. it's a good point. Everything the disciples did, the power that they had was his. Not only that, he was trusted by the disciples enough that they kept, he kept the money. He was the money keeper. And so you don't trust somebody that you think's a snake with the money. And so they trusted him. So there was something about Judas that they trusted that, that he had the same power as the disciples for three and a half years up to the very end. So it is a good question back and forth. I don't think we'll ever really know. Uh, good question whether he was a true believer, was not a true believer. We know that three scriptures from the Old Testament prophesied to him in Psalms that he would uh, uh, betray. And then whenever King Hethfel and David, that episode where David was betrayed, that was used as a fulfillment that Jesus would be portrayed by his best friend. Well, I don't think so. I'll ever have to face him again. He hung himself. Well, that's true. That's true. So, <laughs> And if he didn't go to heaven, we hope you don't meet him in eternity either. So <laughs> we certainly don't want to do that either. Thanks, Charlie. Any other words before we close? All right. It is good to see you tonight, and uh, we'll continue this powerful gospel. Love the gospel of John next Wednesday night. Let's pray together and we'll close. Father, thank you for loving us the way you do. Jesus, thank you for praying for me. And not just one time only. The scripture tells us that you are the high priest interceding for me even right now, every day. So God, thank you that, that Jesus continues to pray for me around the throne each, each day and for all of these believers here. God, guide us this week. May we be one as you desire God, may we not be removed from the world, but may you protect us from the evil one even this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. Have a good rest of the week.